Hi everyone, welcome to the Creative Review podcast. Today we're doing a special on the podcast about CR's annual awards, which are in our latest issue of the magazine. Uh, my name's Eliza Williams, and today I'm here with Patrick Burgoyne. Hi. And Rachel Stephen. Hello. And we're going to talk through some of the best in book winners, and also just a bit of background about the annual itself, which I'm going to go over to Patrick for. What's the history, Pat? Yeah, well, we started doing the annual in 2003. I think at the time we were uh, looking at the um, the annuals that some of the American magazines were doing, communication arts and print. Print in particular, they did a, a European design annual. And we were looking at it thinking, well, hang on a minute, if print can do a European design annual, maybe we should be doing something like that. And it just seemed like quite a good format and something that we could do that was different to what was already out there um, with the other award schemes that were in existence. And I think we were very mindful of trying to have some kind of model that would work in the context of the magazine, but would also offer up the possibility of having as wide a variety of work as possible. Because I think we felt that the way that this um, award systems worked, when they had very rigid categories, you would get really good work that was excluded simply because it didn't fit into the right category or maybe that one category was really strong and there could only be one winner. Mm. So we wanted to try and avoid that. We wanted to have something which was quite open-ended and reflected more the mission of the magazine to be inclusive, really, and to have this really good, wide cross-section of, of creative work. Yeah, so there's a real mix, isn't there? Because there's obviously advertising and graphic design, which are creative reviews sort of staples going yeah. back for three years. But now, you know, there's installations, experiential work. Yeah, what's great is that we always have this... Um, other category when we're trying to work out well how can we make it obvious to people what they can enter but then over the years we've always um, had these quite random projects that are often the most exciting people don't they don't really fit necessarily into the uh, categories perhaps of the other award schemes out there which is maybe why they find more of an outlet with us as well but it's something that we're really keen to encourage because as I say, quite often they're some of the most exciting things and the most innovative things that don't fit easily into a pigeonhole. Yeah, especially nowadays, because obviously so much inspiration comes from things that are happening in a variety of worlds. And yeah, and, and the way that people can combine things, I think is really exciting. And, you know, we see that more and more now in the stuff that makes it into the annual. Yeah. And then in terms of judging, uh, there's usually three panels and it's all done in one day. Yeah, we split it into three just for... for ease of use really and also so that when we bring in um, outside experts we can use them on in the best way possible so we usually have a, a digital panel uh, we have an advertising panel and a design panel but within that they have a very broad remit um, and so we invite uh, people from the industry and uh, somebody from creative review is usually there alongside as well and it's a really good day of discussion and debate and argument and um gradually we whittle it down and i think one of the other really good things about the annual is we don't go into this with a fixed number of projects that are going to be in the final thing we try and leave it as open-ended as possible so we don't exclude things just because we have some kind of arbitrary limit on the amount of work that can go in mm. and the other side of that means that we don't um also feel forced to include things just to meet a target if it's not good enough it doesn't go in and that doesn't matter if nothing gets selected in a particular category or section that's fine by us yeah. Yes, this year I was uh, in the advertising panel, which was really tough. They were it was a it was a great group of people. It was actually all women, which was sort of slightly by random chance, but um but lots of strong different opinions. There was really a lot of debate and they were very tough about uh what went in really. We had really had only one 
best in book that was a pure piece of advertising from our group that uh, there was another short film that went in but there was a lot of discussion about the other the rest of the work and it, I think out of the things that just went in book so the two categories are best in book which obviously the the kind of standout work of the year and then the in book which is work which I guess is the sort of uh silver you know the silver in the Olympics or something <laughs> um which is the other great work so we get Obviously, a lot of that's chosen, but this year I think there was only maybe ten or eleven pieces of advertising overall. So, yeah, I so think there are a lot of projects in the digital section that could also be classed as advertising, or yeah. certainly made by ad agencies. Um, anyway, so um, there's quite a lot of crossover there. But so, do you think that's indicative of a lack of strong work coming out of the industry itself, or do you think it's just shifting a bit more into the digital space where maybe that, that's the kind of work that people want to be celebrated for a bit more? Yeah, I think maybe a bit of both. I think it hasn't been a, a vintage year for advertising, but I think, I mean, I think it's a fairly well-known uh, recognition that it's tough in advertising at the moment. I think, it's, you know, the effects of digital on advertising and on advertising budgets especially is tough. And I feel like we're in this kind of phase where there's a lot of things being tried out. And while that's going on, you maybe don't get the kind, it's hard to create a piece of work that everybody's going to love and everyone's going to cherish but there's still quite a lot of ideas happening and a lot of things being experimented with um i mean on the digital side i think perhaps there is some more slightly more uh, unusual things happening which show the industry's kind of experimenting there so it's not you know it's not all bad but it's probably not it's not a year where you can go wow there's you know we're spoilt for choice i don't think yeah i think the ones probably the projects i was more excited about were things um there were a couple that, that you would kind of hope would be there and, and, and made it through. They were the kind of projects that people have been talking about a lot through the year. And then there were a couple of things that were quite new to me and it was really exciting to see these new things. And I should probably mention too that we always get a very good international entry into mm. the annual. So among the stuff that's been selected, there are projects from um, Canada and the US and Australia. I think some stuff from New Zealand um, and from mainland Europe. So it's a good always a good international selection there yeah Rach what stood out for you I know you you went to see one of the best in book pieces the Mog Mogdiliani I'm terrible at pronouncing that name um yeah forgive my mispronunciation of the name but um but yes I I wrote a piece on it actually so um one of the best in books was a VR project that was created by a studio called Preloaded in partnership with HTC Vive and it accompanied a blockbuster exhibition of Modigliani paintings at the Tate um, and the the premise was quite simple. It really wanted to transport viewers to Modigliani's studio in Paris. So you would walk around, see his paintings, and then you would sit down in a room at a desk. You'd have a headset given to you, and you put that on, and all of a sudden you're inside his studio. So you can look around, you can see his easel, you can see his steaming coffee mug or a cigarette that's smoking on the side. Um, and really it was about trying to, I guess, um, show you the conditions that the work was created in and maybe help you learn a little bit more about the artist. Um, and did it feel, did you feel immersed? Did it feel real or how, I mean, how engaging was it? I think from the style of graphics, it's never going to feel quite real. Um, there was a lot of attention to detail in it. Um, so they'd studied a lot of different photographs um, preloaded working with Tate um, of, of the studio and what it looked like. It's actually now a and b that I think runs Modigliani-themed supper clubs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they'd clearly kind of done, done a lot of research and, and really built the space, but, but obviously you have that, that sense that you're almost in a kind of computer gamified version of Modigliani's yeah. studio. But I think what was really nice about it was 
how accessible it was. If if you put a VR experience in in an exhibition like that at the Tate, the people that are coming to see that, a lot of them might never have tried VR. And I think quite often, sometimes with VR projects, you can run the risk of you want to show off everything the technology can do, and you you want to you know put in all these different kind of features or different ways you can interact with things. This one's actually very simple. You just look around and with your eyes, you trigger different types of audio commentary and okay. sound effects. But in a way, you don't have to think about anything. You just sit down and, and take it in and, and look around. There's no kind of getting stuck in wireframes or walls or yeah, I was gonna say, walking into things. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a often experience. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think it's a really nice example of how by creating quite a kind of stripped down experience and, and making sure that it's not something that's going to intimidate people or make them feel confused. It's, it's quite a short experience as well. Um, it, it really creates something that can appeal to a lot of different people, but but also, um, as I said before, just gives gives you another way to experience the work, I guess. There's nothing that I think can compete with really seeing one of his paintings up close in the flesh. This isn't trying to, to compete with that in any way, and it, it's more about, I guess, just offering a fun kind of addition to that where you can sit and learn a little bit more about his, his life. Yeah, and I think there's always an element, especially with an artist that's no longer alive, that if you see a studio space, I went to see the... Um, the Francis Bacon uh, studio that's set up in Dublin in a museum in Dublin, and obviously, and it was originally in London, so they transferred the whole thing over. And you kind of go and you look through uh, a window into it, but it's it's all the original stuff from a studio. But even in that context, which is probably more real than VR, obviously, but it's you still feel at a remove. But it does actually make you think differently about the work and about how it's created. So I think it would would add something to a. A show, especially a famous artist, I think. They have something similar yeah, at the um, the Vitra campus in um, Switzerland for Charles Just and Ray Eames. Just dropping <laughs> in. Uh, when I visited last year. So in one of their buildings, they've got a recreation of Charles and Ray Eames studio. Okay. As it would have been in, I guess, the late 50s. And again, that's really nice. You know, see all the little objects that they had around the place for inspiration or things they kept on their desk. Yeah. And the kind of tools they used um, and half-assembled prototypes and things like that. It's really, It's really nice addition to the experience yeah definitely and I think whether you're doing that as a kind of physical space or you're doing it as some kind of digital project I do think people get a lot from from being able to just kind of feel or see what what that environment was like and it's it's such a rare opportunity and especially for kind of historical artists um and there was there was a Rolling Stones exhibition as well um at the Saatchi Gallery a while back that Pentagram had done but that had a quite a fun kind of take on it where they'd uh, recreated the uh, flat that quite a few members uh, were, were sharing. Was that the original one? Back in <laughs> yeah, early days. so lots of kind of dirty dishes stacked up <laughs> in the sink. stink. And, yeah, <laughs> and you could almost kind of imagine the stench and they had some brilliant um, audio commentary from the band kind of uh, playing as you walk through the space just telling you how filthy it was really um, yeah. and disgusting. Oh, but again, it's, it's really fun to kind of, as you're walking around and looking at the music and, and seeing old kind of clips from TV appearances and things to actually see maybe the space that they were living in and, and making that work in. Yeah, no, I think it is. It's a good, it's a good thing to do. And then, if you, from the art point of view, you then go in and maybe you think slightly differently about the painting. So, it's good. So, Pat, what did, uh, what stood out for you that was most interesting? Well, a couple of things. I should probably give a, a kind of tip of the hat to um, Studio Sutherland's um, Start Right Visual Identity because that's one of those projects that I think is probably going to win lots and lots of awards. That's the Kids Shoes Company. Yeah, uh, and it's just very charming and. Um, lovely piece of work and you know it's one of those things where when it came up all the judges were like yep that's yeah one. um so that certainly i think is is very well merited but i guess the thing that i was quite excited about was the um a project called flint is a place which um is a multi-platform 
documentary project. Um, it was entered as a website into the, the annual, but exists in, exists in quite a few different streams and places. And it was started by um, a documentary photographer called Zach Kanapari. Uh, about seven years ago, he made a film uh, with one of his uh, main collaborators, a guy called Dre Cooper, about a female boxer called Cl um, Claressa T-Rex Shields, who, who lives in Flint, Michigan. Um, and I'm sure lots of people listening will know a bit about Flint and the fact that it's become this sort of symbol of uh, American urban decay. Yeah, Michael Moore is. Yeah, Michael is he Moore from there. He's he from there, and he made made a very famous documentary, probably his breakthrough documentary in the late '80s, called Michael and Me. Sorry, Roger and Me, um, which was about the um, the guy who was the boss of General Motors at the time, and and Flint was famous as being the home of General Motors. Yeah, it grew rapidly in the '60s. Lots of African Americans moved up there from the southern states for work. Um, there was lots of uh, very well-paid blue-collar jobs, and Flint ended up with one of the highest per capita incomes in the whole of the U.S. as a result. And then, of course, through the 70s and 80s, the auto industry contracted. Lots of people were laid off. Those jobs weren't replaced in any way. Lots of people started to leave Flint, so the tax base went down. And all these problems multiplied. And then on top of all of that, for the last few years, um, the water that comes out of the taps there has been undrinkable. And they've had yes. this terrible uh, public health catastrophe with the kind of lingering suspicion that had it happened to a town that was perhaps uh, whiter in terms of its population, it would never have dragged on this long. Right. So for all sorts of reasons, Flint is this really interesting kind of microcosm of, of many things that have been going wrong in the US. And um, so Zach Ganapari was really drawn to what he found there, but I think he also wanted to try and tell a slightly different um, story because it, it would be very easy to get sucked into portraying everybody who lives there as a victim. And he's very consciously not done that. He's tried to find some more positive stories and tried to, um, the way he described it to me was that he, he was trying to do for Flint what The Wire did for Baltimore, albeit um, fictional for The Wire, but to try and concentrate on different aspects of the city and how it works. So. There's a, a thread which looks at school life. There's a thread which looks at um, local government. Um, and some people might have seen uh, Flint Town, which is the documentary series that came out of this project, which uh, is on Netflix, which concentrates on the police department um, and the city authorities. Um, so it's this really fascinating kind of way to address a subject. And the site itself um, has uh, several episodes which uh, look at different aspects of life there and each of those episodes features a mix of uh, written content, still imagery and video. So it really is this kind of uh, multifaceted, multi-platform thing and it's just a, a fantastic project. It, it, it's been funded by various um, charities but also by working with people like the New York Times to get funding for specific parts of it. So it's a real labor of love and, and an amazing thing for a really small group of people to have put together and, and it shows a huge amount of dedication. Yeah and is it ongoing? It's because he talked a bit about to you about um, about the kind of nowadays that people's attention spans sort of move you know that they'll engage hugely with say when the Netflix show comes out people will be very interested and engaged with it and then everyone moves on and I mean we see this happening a lot in other parts of the world as well where say a disaster happens and everyone's very focused on it and you never really get the follow-up so is he trying to yeah, kind very, of get a continuity? He's very mindful of trying to keep it um, top of mind for people and not allow it just to slip off the news agenda particularly around the whole water issue. Mm. Um, so he's done uh, a VR project with the New York Times 
There are plans for a book later this year um, and potentially uh, more series of the uh, Netflix documentary. So yeah. you know, there are more plans to keep it going. Um, for It'd be great it if takes. it could turn, you know, if, if the town does have a sort of turnaround as well, you could kind of continue documenting that. So it doesn't, isn't just about the bad Absolutely. Well. I think that's his, his ambition. I think it's to uh, really, you know, keep focus on Flint and its people and to show that they're not just uh, helpless victims. They're fantastic people who live there. Yeah. They're doing their best in a community it's that's like been hit lines. really hard. Yeah. 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 yeah, I think what was great about the documentary as well is it, it had that mix of, it, it felt very kind of cinematic and, and they'd use a lot of the techniques, I guess, that, that these kind of larger budget TV dramas and things are using now to kind of draw you in. But but really, it, it wasn't trying to kind of force a particular point of view and it was very much kind of painting this picture of, of what had happened and how Flint had come to kind of fall on these really hard times. But it doesn't in any way kind of shy away from from how terrible a lot of the things that are happening in Flint right now are and, and how under-resourced their police team are and how it's going to be really difficult to turn things around without more kind of support or investment um, in, in things like government um, and things like the police force. Um, but I think by, by kind of creating that quite long running documentary, it, it really helps kind of show the, the picture in kind of all its complexity, I guess, rather than trying to just kind of cram it all into one yeah, side. That's or the beauty of these of the opportunities you have now with the internet and so on is that you can really do something that's deep and, thoughtful and long-lasting in a way that you absolutely couldn't have done in a documentary pre pre-digital really yeah it's absolutely. always going to be short term though. yeah i don't so. think you could ever have told this story over a, a kind of 10 minute short film or something so it's really interesting to see how by using all these different mediums so the documentary the interactive site these vr projects you can really tell what is quite quite a complicated story um, and yeah. hopefully in a way uh, it will maybe have a bit more impact as a result of that indeed on the ad side, the, the one best in book uh, piece that was chosen was uh, in some ways, actually, I mean, this was part of the discussion in the jury was actually kind of quite a traditional piece of work. It was um, an ad for Audi called Clowns, which I'm sure you both know, obviously, and lots of listeners will know, but uh, which but it's a it highlights Audi's safety features, um, but it does it in a kind of quite fun and special way in that the the there's an Audi driver on the road and everyone else on the road are clowns and they're sort of doing clown-like activities. <laughs> <laughs> and it's set to um, the song Send in the Clowns, which adds a sort of level of, of poignancy to the scene, pathos. Um, but there was some discussion. I think it sort of is, highlights sort of perhaps a, the battle that the ad industry has at the moment is because it's a really, it's a brilliant idea and it's brilliantly made, by, directed by Ring and Ledwidge. But there is an element where it feels like these sort of very crafted, clever piece of television advertising almost feels slightly old fashioned now, which uh, it feels slightly unfair in a way, because you think, well, you can, you know, why can't these things coexist? But I think maybe it's the need for the new with the ad industry. I mean, I don't know. What, what do you think, Pat? Do you think maybe the ad industry eats itself in this way that it can't celebrate this sort of work? I think. Like any industry, you know, there's a, de a degree of fashion there and there's always a, a rush to be the first agency to uh, embrace a new technology. You know, you see the amount of VR projects or AI projects or whenever a new technology comes out, you know, there is this sort of sense of let's try and be the first to show how innovative we are, which you know, is, fair, is fair enough. And I think also the way that um, juries work, hopefully not ours, but they <laughs> but can it was, be... it was celebrated, of course. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, they can be very much... Um, trying to um, follow 
follow trends, follow fashions, follow what's won in previous schemes. You know, yeah. that always I think that sometimes it. happens a little bit by kind of osmosis almost that yeah. you can't help it. Yeah. I mean, it, the, we spoke to Ringen for the for a piece that's in the issue and uh, it's a brilliant story. And, I, and he sort of made the point of it, it being a great piece for him to do because there was a great budget, the great client and the agency and he all worked really well together. And it was a very much a collaborative piece and they gave him enough budget to have time to prep and all these things that again feel feel slightly old-fashioned really but are so important in creating a kind of strong piece of work but he he was talking about they went they filmed it in Prague and uh and the clowns most of the clowns not all of them but most of the clowns that are featured are actually clowns that are from a clowning sort of school who are now working as clowns and he was saying um, about this. They really look like that. It's not makeup. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they all have clowns. And this is something that I have heard before, but he was uh, affirming it, that uh, that when you become a kind of clown, you you develop a persona that is your clowning persona. So it's not that you one day you're kind of cheeky, the next day you're slapstick, or you know, or the next day you're sad, that you, you stick with your, your style of clown. So he was saying that in the casting, that you know, the clowns would come in and they would be like, well, this is, this is my clown, <laughs> take it or leave it sort of thing. And that that helps sort of shape some of the scenarios and so on in the, in the ad because, you know, that you're working with the characters of the clowns, which are... I thought it was fun. He did say it was very good fun making it, and you can kind of tell watching it that uh, it'd be a good costume piece. <laughs> <laughs> okay, finally, I think we're just going to talk a little bit about the New York Times because they have been in our annual and been best in book winners in our annual. Uh, so, Rach, you interviewed uh, Gail Bickler, who's she the design director? She is, yes. Um, Gail was brought in. At, well, Gail's actually worked at the, the magazine for, for a very long time. Um, but over the last few years, the New York Times magazine has invested a lot in um, a new redesign um, and bringing in new people in the creative department. So Matt Willey as well. Um, and they've really, they've really turned it, I mean, not turned it around, but they've really brought something special to it, haven't they, I think? They really have. Um, it's no easy feat making a weekly magazine feel really fresh with every issue, but they've done it. And, um, and I think what's amazing about their covers um, is first of all how different each one feels from the last so they've had covers that have um, they've had comic book artists create covers they've had typographic covers they've had photographic ones some are really conceptual uh, some are very direct um, they've had uh, Andrew Ray who's an illustrator um, create an amazing image and um, with a very short turnaround time of all of the crazy things that have happened in the first six months of Trump's presidency um, they commissioned a lot of female artists to, to create artwork um, as part of an issue exploring sexual harassment in the workplace um, and a really striking typographic cover which just said simply she said um, on the front of it um, I think consistently they're very direct pieces of communication and often a really amazing example of the image working so brilliantly with with a single cover line um, I think they have um, I guess a lot of luxuries that other magazines don't have in that they're not sold on the newsstand so they come with the paper um, yeah so it's behind under the fold or whatever I think is the exactly so you're not having to worry about you know cramming as many cover lines on there or putting a, a big celebrity on the issue um, every month who you know is going to shift copies but I think what it really shows is um, the amazing work that can come out of when you have those conditions when you have a creative team that are really allowed to kind of experiment and, and have that freedom to do things that are quite daring and quite bold really um the subjects they've covered as well um have been things from kind of abortion to politics to pop culture so it's it's a real range um but i think you can really see that those covers have been so so carefully thought about and that they're a real collaboration between the editorial team and the art department and that each time they're trying to do something that's that's really different that's really new um and i think they're really kind of 
putting a lot of thought into getting the strongest image and the strongest cover line um, for, for that particular topic. Yeah, it's nice to see that happening in print as well. I mean, the New York Times has been kind of famously really doing a lot of great work in the sort of digital space, but it's they are also putting the same amount of energy and interest and design thinking into print as well, which you know, feels feels positive that they're still rewarding that area as well, not abandoning it, really. Absolutely, and it feels quite rare right now in yeah. uh, publishing. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of great independent magazines who are doing something really interesting, but to see a weekly magazine um, kind of putting out covers that are that, that kind of bold and, and daring week after week um, feels quite unusual. Indeed. All right, we're going to leave it there. There are plenty of other Best in Book winners and lots of in-book winners, and you can see them all in the latest issue of Creative Review, which is out now, and also on our website at creativereview.co.uk. And as always, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Creative Review. All right, thanks a lot. Thank you.